0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation, including audience Q&A, with Dr. Vivek Murthy. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, everyone. OK, I'm going to shift the tone here a little bit because, um, oh, it's so good to be in this room again. Um, and I mean, how many well, I can't see the light is bright. But how many people were here uh, for the, for our live taping in 2020 on air fest? It was um, it was the last day of the on air fest. And um, I th- a state of emergency was declared that day mm. in New York. As we sat here, this close. <laughs> and Ocean Vong is who I interviewed. And backstage where we just were, I remember that we were kind of, like we'd kind of gotten the news that we needed to be careful. So when we met, we, we bumped elbows. But when we finished our conversation up here, we had a big bear hug, oh. because surely, Things weren't changing that much, and we all left this room and went back to a changed world. And by that Wednesday, three days later, I was sitting in the On studios, sending everyone home from work, mm. thinking we'd all be back in a month, and nothing's ever been the same again. Mm. So I, um, you know, I I want to invoke this memory. Um, not just to honor the gravity of what happened and really what we're all still carrying, um, which I hope, I hope this can be, this, this hour together can be a way to uh, process that a little bit and, and hold that and honor it, but also to invoke um, a question that I want to ground this conversation, which is what have, what have we been given to learn, who are we now, and who are we called to be, which are questions very much that you are working with out in the world. Um, I also feel like it's really important to name and this will also be something we'll go into that there's a lot of despair right now that we don't know how to talk about. There, we're carrying a lot of ungrieved losses, a great deal of unnerving change, um, and what I was trained to do and what I think a lot of us were trained to do is power through And we're succeeding in powering through to some extent, but it's showing, all of these things are showing up sideways in our relationships, in our organizations, in our country. And it is a basic truth of life in a family or a nation or an industry that until we can name what is happening in our midst and let it be in the middle of the room, that we can't work with it. And we can't walk with and through it together It will continue to haunt and define us until we do that. Um, And again, we have great callings coming out of these last three years. And we need a modicum of health and vitality for the imagination and agency and joy that all of that needs if we're to rise and rise together to this moment. And this is where Surgeon General Vivek Murthy comes in. This is what I knew I wanted to talk about here, because for me, again, this is where the pandemic started. Um, And so I know we all think of Dr. Fauci as the nation's doctor, but actually, this is the official (laughs) nation's doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we have had a number of touch points over the last few years, all in pixelated form. and this is a human being of intelligence and integrity and deep care, which is what we hope for and long for in our, in our public servants. Mm. Um, and so I'm so glad to have you here. Now, um, uh, Vivek Murthy, is also, you have served, this is your second tenure as a Surgeon General. You were Surgeon General the 19th and the 21st. Are you the first person to do it twice?
0: I believe I am, actually.
1: OK. Mm. And I also, I'm pretty sure... But it's not something
0: I planned. What? (laughs) It's not something I planned. It just happened. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: know. Um, You're also, I I believe, the first Surgeon General to take your oath on the Bhagavad Gita. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, very importantly in this room... You are the first Surgeon General, I suspect, to host a podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is right. (laughs)
1: And it's a good one. It's called House Calls, and it's a wonderful mix of of reflection and conversation and also some brief meditations. Um, So, yeah, all that is a long-winded way to say I'm very delighted to be with you in the old-fashioned flesh. I'm very delighted that I'm just, you know... It feels amazing to me that we are all back here because there were lots of times in these three years where I, we wouldn't have been able to know to rest on that certainty and to feel the electricity and the life that we get from each other. Um, so Vivek, and I've been given permission to call yes, you that. Yes, please do. We are um, friends. So. You know, Western medicine, classically, certainly in the century I was born in, the 20th, um, was Profoundly dedicated to curing, which is not always the same as healing. Uh, you speak uh, about your commitment to the art of healing. Um, you know, I know your grandfather was a farmer in rural India. You're. Your parents immigrated from India. You, were you born in Yorkshire in, in the UK? I was, That's yes. right. <laughs> you went through Newfoundland. You ended up in Miami. Yeah,
0: that's,
1: that's a right. really interesting trajectory. Um, your father was a doctor. But I, I'm curious about, in this, uh, this, this background of your childhood and your family, um, where do you trace the roots of this care that you have, this passion for, the art of healing?
0: Mm. Well, I- I'll just say, Krista, just to start, what a joy it is to be with you as well. As somebody who's listened to On Being for many years, long before I met you, uh, I'm just uh, such a fan, but also a deep admirer of, of what you do, the dialogue you support. And I will say also that ending up in Miami, whereas where I grew up, is what happens when two parents who grew up in the sunny part of South India spend two years in Newfoundland, uh, in the icy cold. Uh, What happens is they moved to Miami, so that is where I grew up. But my interest in healing really comes from my parents, Mm -hmm. because when I was growing up in Miami, they had started a medical clinic there, and it was just the two of them. Uh, My father seeing patients, my mother uh, also caring for patients in her own way and helping run the clinic. And I spent afternoons and weekends there, watching patients come and go, greeting them, and seeing people come in looking anxious and worried, and seeing them leave feeling less so, knowing that they had a partner in their healing. And that word healing Mm. is so important. I'm so glad you underscored it because it is different from fixing. Yeah. Um, In order to heal, to me, healing is about making whole. And to be a healer, you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to love. And I saw those three forces at work in my parents and how they cared uh, for their patients. So that's what got me interested in, in the process of healing. But I also saw that when you help people heal, as my parents did, you also built these beautiful relationships with them. And I saw my parents, who, as two immigrants who came to this country not knowing anyone, not really having any connections or supports, they built a community through their service. Uh, and those relationships were really beautiful. They inspired me ultimately to become a doctor.
1: Mm-hmm. I I so appreciate that connection you um, made between healing and and becoming whole. Because mm. I think one of the things that um that has emerged uh, just kind of conversation by conversation across my twenty years now of um, radio, which then became podcasting, um, is that. Uh, we, we, don't become, we, be, we don't become whole because of all the things we have going for us or mm. what our strengths are, um, that, that actually the wise people I have, have spoken with um, who actually shift the world on its axis, it, it's, it, it is actually, it, 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 it is how they have integrated everything, mm. their vulnerabilities, what went wrong, what failed, um, into their wholeness on the other side. Mm.
0: Yes, and and I think that yes, wholeness isn't something we acquire by stacking achievements or checking boxes or acquiring products or, or consumer goods. Um, you know, and I worry about this because I, you know, I have two small children uh, myself; yeah. they're five and six, and I'm thinking often about the world that they're growing up in and what is that world telling them about who they should be, and what success is. And what I worry about is that right now the world tells our kids and all of us, that to be successful, you need one of three things. uh, To be powerful, to be famous, or to be rich. But we all know people who have all three of those, who are wealthy, powerful, and famous, and profoundly unhappy, who don't feel whole. And so I worry that many of our kids are being led down a path that will not make them whole or fulfilled. I think to truly feel whole is, is, it's not about acquiring something that we don't have. It's about remembering who we fundamentally are. When we come into this world, as I see with my own kids and as many of you may have seen with other young people in your lives, we, we are content. You know, My kids don't care whether we have a big house or a small house. They don't care about how fancy the clothes are that they wear or not. They, they care about finding moments of joy yeah, they care about the relationships they have with the people around them. They observe things, whether it's a, a fleck you know, on the wall that wasn't there before, or whether it's the play of lights as they come through the window in the, in the setting sun. And they find joy in that, in those day-to-day, seemingly ordinary moments. And so I do think part of what has challenged us right now in this moment is that there are a lot of forces around us that have made us feel that we are not whole, that we are not enough. Right? They tell us, well, we're not good-looking enough, we're not smart enough, we're not popular enough, we're not wise enough. But part of what we have to do is to ask ourselves, are those messages speaking the truth about who we are? Mm-hmm. Or is that a narrative that's different? And often I find that that narrative is driven uh, usually by an organization, a product, you know, a com- you know, company that makes products or something where they're trying to sell you a service or a product, right? To make you feel more whole. But I think part of healing, to me, is about recognizing what we already have inside of us, mm-hmm. coming to trust that, coming to rely on that, and ultimately coming to find fulfillment in who we are.
1: And and we're also and we are also living with a great deal of brokenness and rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some of what is broken, we understand wasn't good for us, right? But we but we but we have to um, we have to work with that. And you know, I so. I think all the things we're going to talk about, they're they are about the pandemic and they're mm. not about the pandemic. There are things the pandemic accelerated that were already true. Um, there was this striking sentence by Ed Yong, the science journalist um, in The Atlantic last year. <laughs> if you've been swimming furiously for a year, mm. you don't expect to finally reach dry land and feel like you're drowning. Mm. So, So again... So I think what I what I want us you know if we think about um, well first of all I, w- I want to name that you lost ten family members to COVID is that right mm, Yes in the United States and in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been I've been so admiring of how in your in your role you are you are in workplaces you're in schools you're with the United States, the Council of Mayors right you're mm-hmm. with every kind of Institution and community that we create in this country, and you've been so clear that you're interested in um, how we can heal not only from COVID but also from the isolation that existed before COVID. These things that are that that we just see that much more clearly and feel that much more clearly. So, um, if we think about the way we're orienting this, is you know. Let's talk about this for the sake of how we reach for health and wholeness in the mm-hmm. world ahead. You know, how do you start to characterize or diagnose um, this moment we're in and what's behind it? Like, what is the mm-hmm. core distress that we can name in order to grapple with?
0: So this is at the heart of what I think we have to grapple with as a country and really more broadly as a global society, yeah. which is that there is this sense Uh, that I get when I talk to people all across our country that people are feeling worried, they're feeling anxious, they're feeling pessimistic about the future. And if you try to understand the reasons for that, on the surface, people will point to near-term trends. They might point to something like inflation or they'll point to COVID itself or they'll point to other structural challenges. But I actually have come to believe it's something deeper that's happening uh, because even when uh, inflation was low and when unemployment's remained low and uh, the economy seemed to be doing very well, people still didn't feel great, right? Even before COVID, before we had a giant pandemic, people still weren't feeling great. So there was something deeper happening. And, you know, my sense, Krista, is that there are at least four forces that have driven us to feel this sense of despair. I think one is the extraordinary pace of change that we are living through. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, everything is changing, right? How we communicate with one another, how we think about ourselves, how we think about job prospects, how we even think about what constitutes success. And even good change is hard.
1: Yeah.
0: As a good friend of mine was, uh, you know, uh, was we sharing the other day, you know, he, his kid graduated from, from school, from high school, and was going to college. And he said, this is what I've wanted for so many years, my child to do well to be able to go to college. And I'm heartbroken because my child's leaving, right? So good change can be hard. But the second force has to do with the information environment we're surrounded by, which often is profoundly negative. And I think that's in part because so much of the, what we see in the news and what gets shared on social media stokes our anxiety and our fear. Uh, and that can, can, even if we're immersed in it, which we are much more so now because information is coming at us through so many channels, unlike 30 years ago, then it can lead us to feel that everything is broken about the world. The third force, though, is our dialogue which is that our dial ability to talk to one another has, is broken, to put it plainly. You know, We hesitate to bring up issues with other people that we may disagree on because we don't know how they'll react. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think twice before we post something because we're not sure if we're using the right words. And we've come to care less about people's intentions somehow than about the words they use or about the position that they have. But the final factor that's really, and I'll just say about dialogue, the reason that is so important is when we have times of confusion in our life or when we're uncertain about something, a lot of how we work through that is we talk it through. We listen to what other people say. We ask some questions. Mm-hmm. We, we process out loud. Mm-hmm. But when we can't dialogue, we can't do that. But the fourth and final force I'll mention is the one that's at the heart of your question, which is around loneliness and isolation, which mm-hmm. has been growing. Uh, You know, if you had told me that loneliness and isolation was a challenge, a public health threat, if you will, uh, on a scale as big as any other public health threat we face, six, seven, eight years ago, I would have been skeptical. I would have said, are you really sure? But I actually was educated on this by people all across America who, through their own stories, helped me realize that loneliness was more than something that... I had experienced in my own life as a child and as an adult. It was more than something I had just seen in my patients, but it was something that people all across America were experiencing. You know, there are many surveys now which are telling us that more than half of Americans feel lonely, and the numbers are greatest among young people, as it turns out. And when people struggle with loneliness, not only is it bad for their mental health, increasing their risk for depression and anxiety, but it also increases their risk for heart disease and premature death and so many other physical illnesses. So you put all of this together, and what you find is a recipe for despair. And if we want to break this cycle, if we want to actually reclaim lives that are full of joy, that are fulfilling, we have to rebuild fundamentally our connection to one another. And that is one of the great challenges that we've got to undertake in the years ahead.
1: And you know, I think that um, these these many faces of despair um, often are discussed and uh, and kind of fretted about um, Mm. under the headline of mental health. Mm. And I think you and I, I think you and I, Zoom a couple times in this last couple of years, have talked about how the irony that when we use the phrase mental health right now, what we actually mean is mental distress. Mm. We're actually, and, and, and to the extent that we're talking about, generally, I mean, I feel like this is true of educational institutions. Is, you know, actually, what we're trying to do is, can we come up with a remedy just to stem the harm to some extent, mm. right? We're, I mean, and of course, we, we, we don't want to think that mental health is just the absence of distress. We don't even know how to talk about the other side. Mm-hmm. Of beyond just the absence of distress, and I and I also feel like the language of well-being and wellness also um, there's a lot of good stuff happening in both of these spheres, but it also is actually more remedial often than it's just about helping you you know calm down for a minute so you can get through the day. Um, so I'm I'm fascinated, and I think it's really useful. So I think I think part of what I'm I'm, a, I'm a, always so interested in how the importance of the words we use. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if some of the words we use around this are a bit overused and amorphous, um, I think that one thing you're doing with your uh, emphasis on loneliness and isolation is a way into all that. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't to describe all of it, but I think you've done so much investigation that it really is kind of at the heart of it. Um, and one thing I, I know you've said, though, is also that, um, that young people don't, that that's not a word that you said. Young people, I mean, in the, if you study it statistically, mm-hmm. feel this, but it's not necessarily the first word they reach for. Yeah. So, just to kind of break that open, you know, what 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 are we talking about in terms of, you know, what people are feeling? But what are the what are the, um, you know, what does this call us to collectively? What what are the what are the ramifications for our life together?
0: Well. Uh, the ramifications to not being connected could not be more profound because we have, over thousands of years, we've evolved to live in connection with one another. Uh, that seems perhaps a little counterintuitive in the current age where we seem to, in modern society, value independence and do we define that as not needing other people, not being, not needing to rely on anyone else, being able to do everything on your own. But that person who... Thousands of years ago, when we were hunters and gatherers, tried to do everything on their own and go it alone. Like, we know what happened to that person. That person got eaten by a predator. (laughs) Or, Or they died from an insufficient food supply. We learned over time that it's when we built trusted relationships with one another that we all did better, that we lived longer, that we were safer, we were more fulfilled. And the thing is, even though our circumstances are so different now... Fundamentally, our nervous systems haven't changed. The
1: same, the same right? nervous system, they, haven't, yeah. they
0: are very similar to where they were thousands yeah. of years ago, such that when we are separated from one another, it actually yeah. puts us into a stress state. Now, stress in the short-term, to be clear on this, because to your point about mental health, one of the many things we talk about in mental health is stress too, well, what is it? Stress is not necessarily always bad. Short-term stress can actually improve your function, right? You think about the stress you might have right before a race or before an exam or before asking somebody out on a first date. Um, I felt all of those stresses, (laughs) Uh, but that stress, when it becomes chronic, when it's long-term, that's when it becomes destructive, and that's why loneliness, I would think of it like hunger or thirst. It's a signal our body sends us when we're missing something we need for survival, and if we respond to it by seeking out connection and experiencing it, then then we are okay, but the chronic loneliness is, is what pushes us in a bad direction. Now, we talked a little bit about some of the health effects of that, right? Increasing our risk for anxiety, depression, and physical illness. But outside of health, there are also really important ramifications for individuals and society. We know that when people struggle with that sense of disconnection from one another, loneliness, when they don't feel like they belong, it actually impairs their function in the workplace. Uh, Mm -hmm. It reduces productivity, creativity, and engagement, and ultimately retention. Uh, It impacts how students perform in school, It impacts our level of civic engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, think about this in a society, especially a democratic society like the United States, we require, and and, and not require, but we rely on the participation of people in communities to help make it better, to advocate, to vote, uh, to to help and serve. Uh, But that suffers also when people feel disconnected. And finally, just think about the violence that we see, like in our communities. Uh, Violence is, I do not believe the, innate instinct, you know, of, of people when they're in a good state, when they're feeling well. Uh, violence is a reaction to something. And some people may react to loneliness and distress by going inward and retreating from everyone else. Others may lash out uh, at others. But however you look at it, the consequences to individuals, organizations, and society of loneliness is really profound. And that's why I think what we have to do as a society is ask ourselves, what has led us here. To a place where we evolved to be connected, yet we feel so disconnected. And where some of the technology that we were promised would actually help build connection and community seems in many cases to have led us in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, well we, we invested <coughs> we invested in technical, the technological connection, but not the quality of that connection. Um, yeah, I mean, so I I would like to Some things I think have come have have been released just in these last weeks. As I knew I was going to speak to you, that are very hard that speak Mm -hmm. to this. I think um, it is so useful, though, to see this as a whole picture, right? To see mental health and the violence in our society Mm -hmm. as public health crises with human roots. There was a New York Times article um, just the other week where they had uh, profiled the signs of crisis in 50 years of mass shootings. Mm -hmm. Um, A third of them were from the last decade. And Mm -hmm. I think one thing that just infuriates me every time this happens and it happens with such regularity is that there's this, the journalists will say, we're still waiting news of what the motive was, mm. right? As though there's some rational thing that will help us understand it. But what we have, and I think what this, what this Times journalism does is it kind of, it's a picture of, of human despair. It's a picture of, uh, of diagnosable mental health issues. And, you know, here were some of the things and they were almost all men. You know, one of the things, it's very, there's a lot of new research also on the terrible state of the mental well-being of girls, mm-hmm. which I'm sure terrifies you as the father of a girl. Um, and also what's in all of that is that boys struggle in silence. Yeah. But then there is this picture of boys and men. You know, here are some of the things that, 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 will, that these people will say, he suffered from severe back pain, right? He thought his coworkers were conspiring against him. He dropped out of college and lied to his parents about it. Um, he had intense mood swings and alco- alcohol problems. He believed he was straying from his faith. He'd been isolating himself from his online friends. He was evicted from his condominium. He stopped communicating with his mother and ex-wife or his mentor, his old boss. Jealous when his girlfriend started dating someone else. Depressed, broke, isolated, angry. Had no friends. Distressed his wife had left him. Forced to resign from job. Hostile to neighbors. Needed knee surgery. Wife and daughter left him. The... The concluding line of this was, mass shooters live among us, they are us, they are, for the most part, the men and boys we know, which is a really scary way to frame it, but I think, to your point, what we're talking about is human despair, and it is actually something we can name and work with. If we work with it as despair, there's almost like a pathological resistance we have in the society to naming the human, underlying human root conditions of, of social problems.
0: I think there is. And it is heartbreaking just to hear those anecdotes that you shared. And there is a common thread of pain yeah, in all of those stories. And that pain, that despair, is what we have to grapple with. Because I think for too long, what we have assumed is that dealing with that pain is up to each individual. yeah, And it's their responsibility. We can believe that all we want, but the reality tells us something very different, which is as as social creatures, as communal creatures, that we have to help heal one another's pain, that we have to help support and create the circumstances and institutions that allow people to heal, that helps prevent that pain in the first place. That's our collective responsibility to one another. When you have a circumstance where we put that aside and say it's each person from themselves. And this is what happens. You have people struggling in pain. You have situations where people can't come together around solutions because they can't agree on our common responsibility to one another. And I think Mm -hmm. this, to me, is one of the fundamental issues that we need to talk about, is what is our responsibility to one another, Mm -hmm. right? This is a moral question. It's a spiritual question that has implications for policies and for programs. But it has to start at the moral and spiritual level. Um, We can build the best programs and policies in the world, but my belief is that none of those will work as well as they need to if we are not clear on the values that should be guiding us Mm -hmm. in our work. If you were to ask people right now, what are the values that guide us as the United States of America? I don't know that you would get a clear, consistent, list of values. You know, everyone may have their own sense of what that is. But think about another example. Think about an organization that, you know, is starting off, let's say, a nonprofit organization has a clear mission, clear set of values. They make it a point to make sure that everybody in the organization knows what those values are because they need to be reflected in our work. The same is actually true for us as a country. We need to be clear on what our values are. And one of my beliefs here, Krista, is that we can't get clarity on that unless we have a conversation you know with you know as a country about that my belief is that we need to be a nation that is kind where people take care of one another where people step up for one another because they can and because they know that we are all better off when we are all in fact better off and i want us to be a nation where people are generous with one another, where they recognize that there are times all of us are going to be in need, where all of us may stumble and fall, but we have to help each other up. And I want us to be a, a nation that takes care of our children by making sure that we help them see their true worth and value and don't leave them to believe that somehow that's dependent on their looks or their, how much money they have or how famous they are. And finally, I think we've got to be a nation that fundamentally recognizes what strength really is. Mm. Because strength is not just about how much money we have in the economy or about the might of our military. Those are important. But our greatest source of strength comes from our values and comes from, I believe, our fundamental ability to give and receive love. You know, we don't think about love as a source of strength. But I find find it hard to think of any force that is more powerful Mm -hmm. than love, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we need to talk about that more because especially with young boys, and I think as a father of both a young girl and a young boy, I want my son to know that he shouldn't feel ashamed to express love, to receive love, right? He shouldn't think that somehow that that is not becoming Uh, of a young boy and, and, or not manly in some way, all of us, men, women, everyone, we all have the desire and need uh, to give and to receive love. So this has to be, you know, how we, part of how we redefine strength. Like nobody would look at the sacrifices that a parent makes for their child, how they sometimes put themselves in harm's way Mm -hmm. to protect their child and say, wow, love is weak. Nobody would look at the soldier, you know, I remember uh, a father, I met a heartbroken father whose son had lost his life after throwing himself on an IED so he could protect his fellow soldiers uh, when he was in the theory of war. Nobody would look at that kind of sacrifice and say, oh, that love is weak, right? Yet what are we doing to cultivate love mm-hmm. in our society, in our schools, in our families? We have to give people the permission and the encouragement to feel love, to cultivate it, to prioritize it. Because to me, it's the backbone of good policies, good programs, and a strong society.
1: And it all—it almost sounds idealistic, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, we're not used to hearing public officials speak this way, but I mean, you and I have been in conversation with Richie Davidson, who's a neuroscientist who works on compassion, and they're actually taking, mm-hmm. you know, teaching kindness, cultivating kindness, love, and compassion in classrooms as human skills that are needed for education and formation in the broadest possible sense um, it's something that's important to me also when I agree with you we have to talk about love as a public good and also de-romanticize I mean the way love as you say the way love mm. actually works is often very often in the course of a day has nothing to do with how you feel mm. it's 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 what you do it's and and it's 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 daily giving and it's and um, you know, it's, it's, it's what you do sometimes in, in spite of how you feel, but you do it because you care about that, re, that relationship, you're invested in that relationship. Um, I, I mean, I'd love to keep going that, on that a little bit. So if we think about how you think about getting to the other side of talking about mental health as something we're putting a Band-Aid on um, just to try to minimize distress... Um, how do you think about, it? and you're out, you're out in all kinds of your school in schools. I mean, how do you think about what would that look like if we oriented and got pragmatic mm-hmm. about formation for whole healed human beings? Mm-hmm. And and again, that's not to say that that we're we're raising people for whom nothing will go wrong, because it is true of life that things go wrong all the time. So how do they how do they be healed and whole? And walk through life as it is in that way?
0: It's a good question. I think that one of the most tangible and practical places we can start is by rebuilding social infrastructure in our country. Now, we're used to thinking about infrastructure as bridges and roads, and that is part of the traditional infrastructure. But there exists in communities a social infrastructure that consists of the programs, policies, and structures that foster healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And that can be everything from how you plan cities and towns to allow people to actually interact with each other. That has to do with the kind of programs you institute in schools, uh, particularly around social-emotional learning, to give children a foundation for building healthy relationships for one another. It has to do with the kind of culture and practices you have in the workplace. Uh, and you know we have some in ours. Others have been developing these as well. But practices that allow people to get to know one another as human beings and not just as skill sets, these are some of the many things, and there are, of course, many other uh, initiatives that I've had the privilege of visiting in communities, from the Men's Sheds program to the High Neighbor program to uh, an incredible uh, you know, group of individuals that my team just visited in, in northwest Indianapolis, uh, people who call themselves uh, roving listeners, uh, who actually go door to door and knock on neighbors' doors and they don't ask them what they need, they ask them what they love, what brings them joy, right. uh, and they help foster and build connection with their neighbors that way. So there's a lot we can do to build a social infrastructure that's very tangible, that includes steps that local government, workplaces, and schools can take. Um, but there are also steps that we have to take as individuals mm-hmm. and as families, uh, because the truth is that the impetus for a lot of this change has to come from individuals. If individuals don't care about rebuilding social connection, if they don't care and have have a common sense of the core values we want to get behind, it's very hard to keep public officials um, motivated to keep investing in those spaces or to keep workplaces or schools uh, doing the same. So we have to be very clear as individuals that we want to make social connection a priority. And I believe that if we understand not only the consequences of disconnection, but the power of social connection then we will make it a priority, and that's one of the reasons I've been so focused on this. Chris, one last thing I'll say, which is to a point you brought up earlier about how we think about mental health and despair and are we really getting to the root cause of issues? I worry that the way we think about mental health and talk about it is I think the pro- that seems almost to be a proxy for talking about severe depression and anxiety.
1: Yeah, right
0: And by extension, then we think that all mental health problems, just require having more psychiatrists and therapists, mm-hmm. and then we would solve it. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think we need more therapists. We need more mental health professionals. I've been a big advocate for investing more in that area, and I'm very proud that, uh, that President Biden has made that a priority as well, and there are more investments. But I do think that the way that you and I are talking about mental health is much broader, mm-hmm. right? This is actually more in the realm of well-being, right? Yep. of, of, of yeah. understanding as I think of it, is our tank full, right? Our mental health, in my mind, is the fuel that allows us to be and do what we do, to show up for our family, for our friends, for our workplaces, for our communities. And if that tank is empty, Mm -hmm. you know, we may not have a diagnosable mental illness, but we won't be functioning anywhere near our full capacity. We may lapse into sadness, into despair, into anger. Uh, And so... This is about more than diagnosable mental illness, as important as that is. This is about improving our overall level of well-being. And this is where social connection is one of the most powerful tools uh, that we could foster. And it's so, it seems so simple that just building relationships could contribute to those outcomes that we almost uh, yeah. don't believe it. And if I told you, Chris, if I said, hey, I went into my backyard and I made this pill and it's pretty amazing uh, and it's free and if you take it, uh, it will actually improve your health. It'll make right. you feel better. It yeah. will improve your performance at work. It will yeah. improve your grades. Um, Boost everyone your Everyone will be happier. Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, hey, sign me up. I'll, I'll take that tomorrow. It turns out that's what social connection is. Yeah. Uh, and. We, we just have to make that a priority and build this rebuild, I should say, the social infrastructure in our country.
1: So I want to say, um, in about five minutes, we're going to open this. I want to do the Q&A in the middle, and then I'll come bring this back, because we have a podcast to make out of this, and so I have to have a narrative arc and an ending. So I'm, I have, like, one more question, and then we will... Um, I think there will just be some roving mics. We'll have about 15 minutes of Q&A, and then we'll come back up here to finish. Um, to that point, um, you and your wife, um, Alice Chen, who is also a physician, wrote this completely prescient article in, can this really be true, in March 2020 in yeah. the Atlantic? I, when I read the date, I couldn't really believe that it was March 2020. That must have been weeks into us understanding that we were in a pandemic, right? And guys lockdown had started. So... Yes. Yeah, so so that thing because the the idea that what we're talking about is organic and elemental mm-hmm. and in fact a lot of this we know in our we know in our bodies mm-hmm. how to do this even if we become estranged from that knowledge. Yeah. And it's so much it's so much simpler than trying to figure out how you solve gun violence on on the one hand and 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 Right and 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 all of these this anguish and that we can that we can identify and all these repercussions of anguish. So one of the things you did in that um, this article. So you said um, in the short term, and I, th- I suppose you all were looking into lockdown and maybe knowing more than the rest of us, it was actually going to last a while. Um, You wrote, in the short term, the stress of loneliness serves as a natural signal that nudges us to seek out social connection, just as hunger and thirst remind us to eat and drink. But when loneliness lasts for a long time, it can become harmful by placing us in a state of chronic stress. And then that has all this cascade of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual ripple effects. But you also offered four strategies in that article. that anybody could do that kind of move us individually towards this social reality. Do you remember what those were? Okay. I do, I do. Share them, please. <laughs> and I'm also curious if you added any since.
0: Sure. And and they are four simple steps. Yeah. Because it turns out that because we are hardwired for connection, even just a little bit of time and a little bit of investment in human connection goes a long way toward us feeling better. The first is to spend 15 minutes a day connecting with somebody you care about. That could be calling them up. It could be video conferencing with them. It could be sending them a text just to say, hey, I'm thinking of you. I just wanted you to know that you're on my mind. The second...
1: But hang on, you said, this is yeah. an important view, you said um, communicating with people you love other than the people you live with. They don't count in this, right?
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so, And the, the reason for that is... Um, Like many people, and I'm happy to share some personal stories here uh, later if you'd like, but we sometimes think that the world of people who care about us is a lot smaller uh, than it really is. And sometimes, um, well, we'll, maybe if you'll indulge me, I'll tell one quick story here, which is uh, when I finished my first term as Surgeon General, um, and finished means it ended quite abruptly, and, and it was surprising to me. And what had happened during that time is that time I had spent as Surgeon General, I made one critical mistake, which is that I convinced myself that in order uh, to really do well at this job and give everything I could, that I just needed to be 100% focused on the job, and I neglected my relationships. I didn't keep in touch with a lot of my friends. Even when I was with family, I was distracted on my phone. And when suddenly you know, I no longer was serving as Surgeon General, the one community I did have was my community at work. And all of a sudden they were gone. Right? And I felt profoundly alone, I actually sort of sunk into this deep sort of abyss of loneliness for a long time. And I remember seeing a friend once on a trip to Boston, and she said to me over breakfast, she said, Vivek, you know what your problem is? I said, your problem is not that you don't have friends. I said, your problem is you're not experiencing friendships. She said, if you called any one of those people who you had lost touch with, they would be more than happy to talk to you, much happier than you realize. So she said, you have to get over your shame and your sense of embarrassment at not being in touch and just reach out and you'll find the people are also hungry for human connection. So that's why that 15 minutes with people uh, you care about outside of those you live with can be powerful. The other three I'll mention quickly. So the second is to give people your full attention when you talk to them. This is something that I have been guilty of not doing at many points uh, in my life because my hand somehow sneaks into my pocket, takes out my phone, and then before I know it, I'm refreshing my inbox, checking the scores on ESPN and like God knows what else while I'm catching up with a friend who I was looking forward to catching up to for so long. Like, where is that coming from? Well, it's not just a failure of willpower per se. You know, these devices were designed specifically to pull you in and to keep you on them. Um, But if you can take even one of those conversations, that 15 minutes that we talked about each day, and just give somebody the gift of your full attention, your attention has the power to stretch time. It can make five minutes feel like 30 minutes. And so that's very powerful. The third thing that's important to do is to find opportunities to serve others. Now, this is also a bit counterintuitive. You might think, if I'm lonely, don't I need somebody to help me? Why am I helping somebody else? Well, it turns out that when we help each other, we not only forge a connection with someone else, but we also reaffirm to ourselves that we have value to bring to the world. And that's important because when we struggle with loneliness for a long period of time, it erodes our sense of self-esteem and self-worth. We begin to think we're lonely because we're not likable, that it's our fault somehow. But service shortcuts uh, that circuit uh, and help us feel more connected to others and ourselves. And the fourth and final one is around solitude. Yeah, And this also is counterintuitive, because mm-hmm. you might think, solitude, if I'm lonely, do I really need more time alone? But loneliness is not so much about how many people you have around you. It's about whether you feel like you belong. It's about whether you truly know your own value and feel like you are connected to other people. It's about the quality of your relationships with others and yourself. The solitude is important because it's in moments of solitude when we allow the noise around us to settle, uh, that we can truly reflect, that we can find moments in our life to be grateful for. But those moments of solitude have become increasingly rare because all of the white space in our life has been filled, right, by our devices, right? Back in the day when I was waiting for a bus, that's time I would just sit down and I would think.
1: You were actually waiting. I was actually waiting. Yeah.
0: Right? Now... You know, if I'm waiting for a bus or waiting for the subway, then I'm looking at my phone in between to either be efficient, you know, and clear out my inbox or to find something interesting. So our, our mind is constantly filled, and, and we don't have that silence that is so integral to growth. And you might think, well, yeah, I could do that, but I'd feel bored. Boredom is not a bad thing. No. Boredom can be generative and creative. So, I mean, anyway, these four simple steps are things that you can do. And that solitude, by the way. It can look different for each person. It might, and it just can just be a few minutes. It could be a few minutes sitting on your front porch before the day begins. It could be a mm-hmm. few minutes in nature, a few minutes in prayer, mm-hmm. a few minutes in meditation, a few minutes listening to music uh, that inspires you or stills you. Um, I'll tell you for me, one of the things I do toward the end of the day uh, is I have a list of videos and speeches and guided meditations that I've collected over the years uh, that are sometimes just a couple minutes long, some are longer, half an hour. Um, But I'll usually dip into those, you know, every night before I go to bed, sometimes even more than one if I'm having a particularly tough day. But that's part of what is in my toolbox uh, to help me reconnect uh, with myself and remember what I have to be grateful for. These are almost disarmingly simple, these four tools I mentioned, but they can be very powerful in helping us feel more connected to ourselves and others.
1: Wonderful. So um, let's... um Let's have 15 minutes or so of what's on your mind. And I can't see very well because this is a bright light, but you probably can.
2: Hi there, guys. Thank you for the uh, excellent conversation. I'm uh, here to your right. I know you can't see me. Wave my hand. Um, So uh, I've got a question for Vivek. So you mentioned earlier that the values that we have in America we don't have language for. And Christy, you mentioned that until we have language for something, we can't really understand it, we can't really play with it. Now, it seems like one of the baselines of this conversation is that connection thrives on collaboration. And so Vivek, if you were going to give some language to some of the values that we might be able to share in the US that promotes collaboration, what would you say those are?
0: Well, that is a great question. And uh, and I couldn't agree more with Krista. So the language really does matter. Uh, it gives us a way to be on the same page about what we're talking about. To, to me, the values, they need to be at the heart of what we build and strengthen in our country and around the world. There are la- values that emanate from love uh, because I do think that fundamentally, uh, you know, we j- are motivated and driven either by love or fear, right? And each has its own manifestations. You know, Love can manifest as kindness, as generosity, uh, as compassion, as service, Fear, though, can manifest as anger, as jealousy, as insecurity, as rage. And we see a lot of fear uh, manifesting in society right now. We need to anchor ourselves more to love. And so the values I speak most commonly about are love and those that stem from it, specifically kindness, generosity, uh, and service. To me, these are anchoring root values that we can build institutions around, that we can raise families around, Uh, that we can build communities around, and that we can ultimately create a stronger country around.
1: You know, um, something I think that you and again, this conversation with neuroscience that we're we're both have have engaged, the thing about those values or virtues, really, Mm. a virtue of being generous or kind or loving, Mm. Um, you know, one of the things we're learning uh, or relearning is that we can change our brains through our behavior, mm-hmm. that virtues and these ways of being, these values, may not be something you grew up being taught. They're certainly culturally not. We, that's not what we imbibe. Like, and even if we pay lip service to some of these things. So you can actually, and I've, I've done this, like you can actually say, I'm gonna act like a kind person acts, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm going to act like a generous person acts, and that will Literally, well, first of all, it's an interesting experiment to try, especially if you feel like this is not how you naturally are. But it will literally rewire you.
0: That's so true. Yeah, and and I think, again, it is because we are hardwired for so much of that. And it's true, it's smiling at other people as well, right? If you are not inclined to smile at strangers, right, because you think that's weird, people don't do that, they'll think I'm stalking them, whatever the reason is, right? (laughs) But if you just practice, the next time you're walking down the street, just smiling at the people that you uh, encounter, that you pass by, even if you don't say a word to them, just smile. You will notice it will make you feel different, right? And you know what's also interesting is when they've done experiments on this, they found that it makes the other person feel better as well, even if you have no exchange of words with them. So, to Chris's point, our behavior can shape our mind. You know, and uh, you know, and I think that's a powerful a powerful step for us to take, you know, because and then over time, you, as you get to feel the benefits of it, it becomes a reinforcing cycle, and then you're able to do those behaviors more.
2: Hello. Hi. Hey, y'all. Hi. Thank you for this conversation. I'm super looking forward to forwarding the link to everybody. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for both of you. I'd love to hear if you, either one of you have an answer, or both of you do. Um, so we know that loneliness is a global crisis right now, but there's something unique here in the United States. Um, the New York Times article that you referenced said that the two main characteristics for mass shooters was loneliness and, and distress. Um, over the years, I've had theories about our hyper-capitalism that exists here in the United States or the rugged individualism, but recently I've been thinking more about, the, in thinking about epigenetics and intergenerational trauma, I'm thinking about the relationship between state and individual and the history of the United States and how it was built on genocide and theft, and slavery, and all the other systems of power and oppression, and the lack of accountability, the lack of repair, resolution, of reparations, might that have an impact on our overall well-being as people here in the United States? Thank you.
0: Well, it's such a good question. I think our past does inform our future, right? And I think we've seen that, not just historically, but in terms of genetics, as, as you mentioned as well. And it's why where we began this conversation in talking about what we've been through even over the last three years becomes so important because that was its own kind of trauma. And trauma is a word I would consciously use to describe that. The loss that people endured was not just loss of life, right? It was loss of ideals, loss of goals, loss of plans. It was uncertainty, tremendous uncertainty people had to deal with. And so if we don't process, talk about, and be honest about the trauma we have gone, gone through, whether it's in the last three years or over the last several hundred years uh, as a country, it's difficult to come to resolution on that. It's difficult to get to a place where we can move forward. And, you know, we can't, may not be able to change the past, but we can acknowledge what has happened and build a better future. But that has to be an honest conversation that takes place. Look, I think like many countries, what we do share in common with other nations is that we are a mix of darkness and light right? We have done extraordinary things, and we have also done things that we regret. You know, I would say slavery is perhaps at the top of that list, you know, of perhaps original sins, as it's been put, or uh, major, major mistakes that has had ramifications, you know, for millions of people, uh, you know, since that time. But we also have things that we have done well as a country. We have come together during difficult times uh, in the past. We have... Uh, work come together as a country, you know, during World War II, for example, uh, to really help defeat, uh, you know, Nazi Germany at that time and forces that were uh, quite destructive to the world. We have also, though, and this is one of the things I feel very proud of you know, with regard to our country, we are also still fundamentally a generous country. You know, it's still striking to me that whenever there's a natural disaster anywhere in the world, the country whose individuals come together and give the most is the United States, right? Despite all the, you know, that may be wrong with the world, there is still light. And so I think to to really be able to move forward as a country, we need to be able to do two things. We need to be honest about the darkness. We need to be able to have conversations about it. We need to be able to hear other people's pain, even if we don't experience that pain, because we should recognize that our collective interests matter. Right? And it doesn't matter if we don't all feel the same thing. Just like in a family. Right? Like, I may not feel the same thing that my sister feels, but if she's in pain, if she's in pain, I want to know about it, I want to understand it, and I want to be a part of addressing it, because that's what a family does. And we also then need to be able to focus and lift up the light. What I do worry about in this uh, day and age is that the information environment we're surrounded by is so negative that it makes us feel like everything is fundamentally broken, that nobody does care about these deeper issues uh, that we are grappling with, uh, and that everyone is out there just for themselves. But I actually don't think that that's the reality, right? And one of the privileges I've had as I've traveled to countries, uh, to communities around our country and seen the movements that are building locally, you know, and I mentioned just a few in Indianapolis and in other parts of the country, but seeing those movements where people are stepping up to look out for one another, to build relationships with one another, to form solutions that can lift everyone up in their community. Those are the solutions that we need to be shining a light on more, that we need to be learning from more, that we need to be scaling and expanding. And so you bring up a very good point. Uh, And I think, to me, this is fundamentally where social connection comes in as well. Because when I have a connection to someone else, I start to care more about what they're going through. I start to care more about understanding their history and their past. I start to care more about helping to get the root of their problems, even if their problems don't seem like they're my problems, right? And we've got to build that brotherhood, that sisterhood uh, once again in America because we can't continue down a path where, you know, where racism is just one group's problem, where, you know, gender inequality is just women's problems. Like, these are our collective problems, right? And we've got to address them collectively with the same fervor, the same commitment, the same love that we would in a family.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. You're incredibly inspirational. Um, I'm so sorry, I can't speak very well okay. because uh, I had a brain injury just before the pandemic, um, a very serious one, um, oh. But I, so bear with me. Um, uh, I wondered, you both mentioned technology and the sort of um, the, the idea of we all have it in our back pocket and that the, the promise of technology and the connection that could happen through technology and the tech companies and the software that is built around and into the algorithms and all of the other things that are going on behind the curtain, basically. Um, It's so hard to imagine that the world that you're um, building, people like you are building, everyone probably here today really wants to build that. But the technology is... While possibly the way to do that, also most of us feel it just can't get, we can't get through that. Um, And I wonder if you have any ideas about how to bring the technology Mm. and the technologists and the companies, which obviously have a bottom line, to keep us distracted and distressed. Literally, those are the sort of two things that, like, help their profits. And I'm not saying they are terrible people, necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of them, anyway. But I feel like we can't get there unless something, like... Fundamentally changed and um, very quickly. Also, can you please share your playlist or your um, you know <laughs> just before you go to bed um, your uh, your your speeches and your I need I need that in my life, please. Uh, rest rest. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, uh, thank you for that question. I'm so sorry to hear about the health challenges you faced before the pandemic. But let me just say, if you ever ask a question like that again, you never have to apologize. No. Because if you hadn't told us uh, that you had sustained an injury, yeah. I don't think any of us would have known. No. So you spoke beautifully, and thank yeah. you uh, for what you did ask. Uh, you're asking a, such an important question, which is how do we manage technology in our lives if we want to truly build the world we're talking about, a world of greater connection? And look, I think that technology has a lot of benefits. You know, I say that if somebody uses technology, I spent years building a technology company to make uh, research better and clinical trials. Like, you know, technology can be good, but it's a tool at the end of the day. It's how we use it, how we design it. That's a really important part, how we design it Mm -hmm. that ultimately determines whether it helps or harms. My worry is that with social media in particular, which is where many of us, uh, you know, may spend time, that that... that ecosystem was developed and designed to to maximize the amount of time you spend on it. So the question is, is that what is maximally beneficial for society, right? And I think the answer is no. I think what I would love to see is a new generation of technology entrepreneurs who design technology that maximizes the quality of our time spent, that maximizes our relationships and connection to one another, and I am confident that those entrepreneurs are out there. I know because I've talked to some of them. I've, I've met some of these folks over the years. We just need more of them. And we need to ultimately challenge the notion that there's only one way uh, to think about these kind of platforms. But in, like, I, don't, I also think that there's a bit of an unfair fight that's taking place right now because we are asking you and all of you and all of us here to essentially try to use the force of our willpower to get off of these devices and to figure out exactly what is a positive use versus a negative use, whereas they have been designed by some of the best product engineers in the world. So you put the best product engineers in the world up against an individual, or especially a young child, you know, who's using social media at the age of 13. That's not a fair fight, right? So this is a place where, you know, I've been public and clear that what we need to do is, number one, change the age at which children are allowed to use social media. I think 13 is too young. It's a critical age where development of the brain, development of social relationships, development of identity is all occurring. And we have seen now more and more data that tells us uh, that social media use is having a negative effect on the mental health of young people. Second thing we have to do is we have to require data transparency from these companies so that we understand the full extent of the impact on our mental health and well-being, as well as which populations are at greatest risk, right? When we see leaked information, we start to realize that some of this data exists, but independent researchers keep telling me they are having a hard time getting the data. And if I told you again that I was going to put something out, uh, you know, into the consumer space that people could use for free and billions of people were using it, but I would not disclose to you the data, on what its potential risks were, you would say, well, that doesn't quite seem ethical or right, uh, and you would be right. And the third thing of many things that we should do is we need to require robust safety standards for these platforms. It's striking to me, I can walk into my house and look around and see that many of the products I had to buy, especially products for my children, had to meet some safety standard before they were allowed Mm. to be sold to consumers. Yet we have billions of people around the world who are using social media where are the safety standards? Where is the demand uh, for data that ensures that, hey, this is actually safe and we understand the impacts on our children? These are places where public policy needs to step in, right? where policymakers need to step up and take action because the last decade or so has proven that you can't rely on the companies to do it alone because they haven't done it. You know, Have they yeah. tried to make some improvements here and there? Yes, but the truth is we are still seeing worsening rates Uh, of anxiety and depression among our kids. Uh, Our kids are really struggling, and so we've got to step up and have their backs.
1: Um, Unfortunately, we have to pull it back up here. One of the great um, liberations of leaving the weekly public radio format is that I got liberated from the public radio clock, so my interviews can be (laughs) as long as they need to be, but I'm going to honor the clock in this room. Um, Yeah, I think... um, it's, it's very hard for us to remember or internalize the fact that these technologies, because the companies are so uh, powerful and, and the network effect by which they've scaled is such a new phenomenon, that these technologies are in their infancy and that we are the grown-ups in the room. But what's happening is that they landed on on us with such power, and now, retroactively, we have to try to suit them, shape them to human purpose, right? Everything you said, we've understood as we've experienced it. Um, So um, I was going to ask you what love has to do with public health, but you've answered the question already (laughs) Um, so beautifully. Um, You know... If we, if we imagine a world that is oriented towards human wholeness and mental and emotional flourishing, where that is part of the formation and education of our young, um, what would the Surgeon General spend his days doing?
3: Hmm.
0: To both build a world that's oriented around healing, around supporting our young, supporting everyone, but also to maintain that world means that we have to make sure that we're talking about it, that we're keeping it in our hearts and raising it up as a priority, that we're continuing to focus on it. Because if we take something for granted, it starts to disappear. Right? There was a time perhaps in parts of society where we were far more connected than we are now. But I suspect we may have taken that for granted and allowed the forces of change and technology to sweep in and then sweep out many of those connections that we had. Look, I think that for every generation, there is a moment where they face a moment of existential change, where there are forces uh, that are visited upon society that threaten our way of life and our way of being, and it's up to that generation to figure out how to respond. To me, this is that moment, and we are those people who have to take it upon ourselves to stitch together the social fabric of our country once again, because it is the foundation on which we build everything else. If you want effective policy to address climate change, if you want effective policy that ensures that we have more support uh, for people so they can be with their families when they're ill, if you want effective policies to help strengthen education in our schools, you need social connection. Because it is only when people care about and are vested in one another that they advocate together, that they move together in the same direction, recognizing that a solution to someone's problem, even if it's not my problem, is a solution that we all need, because we are one people and we are united. And so how do we build that broader movement? Well, it starts with the actions that we take in our day-to-day lives. How do we choose to treat other people? Is it with reflex indignation or is it with respect and a desire to understand where they're coming from? How do we prioritize relationships in our own life with our attention as well as with our time? Do we choose to speak up for other people in the public square, even if their concerns aren't the same as ours, but because we care about them? And do we choose to support leaders who reflect our values these are the decisions we can make as individuals that can shape the world that we live in and the world that our children inherit. You know, this is, to me, very personal because, to me, this is about my children, too. You know, before my son was born, six years ago, uh, I still very distinctly remember that moment of sitting on the, uh, the bed next to my wife and looking at the pregnancy test indicator that indicated that we were going to have a child. and. Uh, I was incredibly excited. I was just thrilled. I was also incredibly scared <laughs> at whether I'd be able to do what this child needed, and be the father uh, that he needed. But what also worried me in the days ahead was wondering about what kind of world uh, my son was coming into. Mm-hmm. It was this going to be a world where people would be kind to him, where if he stumbled and made a mistake, people would forgive him and give him another chance where he would do the same for other people? Was it going to be a world that was driven by and informed by the core values of love, of kindness and compassion and generosity? Or was he going to be in a world that was driven by fear, where people were pitted against each other, where everyone was looking out for themselves? I know what kind of world I want for him. It's the former. That's the same world that I want for all of our children and for all of us. But that won't happen by itself will only happen if we make a conscious decision that this is the world that we want to live in and that fundamentally this is who we are. That we are not mean, angry, bitter people. But in our hearts, we are kind, we are good, we are decent. And our capacity to love and to be generous and to serve has no limit. And it's a muscle that the more we use it, the stronger it gets. So that's what we have to recenter on, like in this moment. All fundamental change begins with identity, with a question of who are we and what are our values. And so this is the time to get real clear on our values. And if we do that, then we will be the generation that this time needs, a generation not defined by age, but really defined by spirit, by vision, and by values. The generation that years from now people will look back on and say, that's when things changed. (laughs) That's when we turned the corner and built the world that all of us deserve.
1: Um, I I watched a a speech you gave to the uh, the US Council of Mayors, Mm. and I I meant to warn you about this and I didn't, but you gave gave them a little bit of a kind of a benediction, kind of a short meditation Mm. invitation as they went back out into the world. And I I wondered if you might do that in this room Mm. too, and we're we're in a room full of audio makers and storytellers and podcasters and and I do think of well first of all I think of podcasting as then a, a new form of radio and a new fireside yes. um and of course um around the fireside from time immemorial we also told true crime stories to each other <laughs> right <here. laughs> it's not all <laughs> sweetness and light um but it's it is a human space and um and it's a place also where we remind ourselves what it means to be human and that we're not alone in this um so you know for for the people in this room as we go out with this craft that we have and and also for people who will listen later you know would you offer just a little bit of a reflection meditation just
0: you know sure sure (laughs) So I'll share with you something that I do in my own life. A tool that I reach for when I'm having those moments where I feel alone or I'm starting to feel the despair creeping in. It's very simple. It takes about 15 seconds. So just raise your right hand and place it over your heart and close your eyes. And I want you to think about the people who have loved you over the years, the people who have been there for you during difficult times, who have supported you without judging you, and who stood by your side even when it was hard. Think about the people who have celebrated your moments of greatest joy with you, the people who saw your successes as theirs, the people who derived such pleasure and fulfillment from seeing you happy, feel their love flowing through you, lifting you up, brightening your mood and filling your heart. And know that that love is always there even if they're not physically with you because you carry that love in your heart and know that you are and always will be worthy of that love. It came to you because you deserved it. And now open your eyes, What you felt in that brief meditation That was the power of love. That is the power of social connection. That is our birthright. It's who we were designed to be and what we were designed to experience. All of us, regardless of what walk of life we're in, we have the ability to shine a light on the bright spots, whether those are relationships that bring joy, or movements in our community that are helping grow connection. It's where we choose to focus our attention. It's where we use our power to focus the attention of others that ultimately determines whether or not we create more light in the world or more darkness. But I just want all of you to know, just as I want my own children to know, just as I remind myself as well, that we are all worthy of love and connection. Even in those moments where we feel that we perhaps aren't. Even those moments where we feel like we're the only one who might be struggling. The truth is we are not alone. Right? There are others out there who want what we want. A world that is more connected. A world where we can actually be there for one another. A world that's actually powered by love. And that is within our grasp. We only have to see it to name it, and to start taking actions in our day-to-day lives to build that world and reflect those values. And when we do, we will experience what one of my mentors in medical school told me years ago, which is she said, Vivek, when you stand in strength, you allow others to find you. And every time you act out of love, whether that's to a member of your own family or a moment of kindness you express to a stranger, you are telling people around you that it's okay to give and receive love as well. You're inspiring people to be a new way and to be a new person in a world that constantly seems dark. You know, in a world that is full of despair, small acts of kindness are radical acts of defiance. Mm-hmm. And they're the force that we need to ultimately build the world that we all need. So,
1: What a joy to be back at On Air Fest and what an honor to bring Vivek Murthy with me.
0: Thank you. Thank, Thank you so yeah. much, Krista. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you.